Today, we discuss innovation at legacy brands and how to make legal and finance your best friends while moving at the speed of culture. I'm joined by Diana Hausling, General Manager, Consumer Experience and Growth at Colgate Palmolive, so basically a CMO. Diana's delivered incredible results at very large, very old organizations over the last 20 years. She's at Hershey's, General Mills, Campbell's Soup, now Colgate Palmolive. It seems Diana doesn't get out of bed unless it's for a 100 to 200-year-old company. I love it. And I was excited to dig into the challenges and opportunities at these legacy brands. Please welcome Diana. Welcome to Evolving Industry, a no BS podcast about business leaders who are successfully weaving technology into their company's DNA to forge a better path forward. If you're looking to actually move the ball forward rather than spinning around in a tornado of buzzwords, you're in the right place. I'm your host, George Jakuszynski. Diana, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation. So first and foremost, I don't usually make political uh, opinions or, or call outs on this show, but I've heard there's a groundswell for Diana for president. And I'd just like to say here that I'm, I'm putting my support behind Diana for president. You, ha- okay. you have my full support. Okay, well, it's not, I won't be running for president, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants that. (laughs) You know, in in preparing for this this interview, Diana, something that that struck out to me is that you your sweet spot is 100 and 200 year old organizations. And what I wanted to start with is when did you along your journey, did you even realize that that's what you loved and that was your sweet spot? And and did you maybe go through a love hate aspect of that at any point? Yeah, I, I I joke that that's my sweet sweet spot, especially that you know now I'm I'm hitting a a, a nice 218 year old organization with Colgate Palmolive, and I think you know it wasn't intentional. As I went through my career, I just had the privilege of being able to work for such awesome legacy iconic brands, and I think for me that's always something that I've gravitated to because I'm a lover of brands myself as a consumer and as a human. And I see the impact that they have on my life, but I also see the impact that they can have on us as humans and on the world. And so I think that it's pretty cool to be a part of the legacy of a brand. And I, I do personally consider it a privilege. But what I find for some folks is it's also really inspirational to see a lot of startup and emerging brands. And sometimes we can get a little FOMO or a little jealous. But what I like to remind my teams is first, and foremost, what an honor and privilege it is to be a part of a legacy. If you think about Colgate Palmolive being around for going on 218 years, mm-hmm. being one of the first 50 companies to still be around today that was in the original NASDAQ. I mean, like that is the staying power. What it takes to be relevant to consumers generation after generation means that you've cracked the code for branding and marketing of having a product that really delivers on its promise and that you understand your branding year over year. And that takes staying power. What I also think is cool about legacy brands, too, is is the privilege and the power that they hold to drive and enhance a consumer experience and drive the category. And what that also means is there's room for everybody else to come in and create that competition that makes us all better. I think for me, when you have these more legacy problems, I jokingly say more money, more problems. And that's because when you're big, you have more exposure when it comes to litigation and lawsuits and things like that. So your standards... Um, and how you practice business is more scrutinized. And that's a good thing for all of us, especially us as consumers. But what it also means as a legacy brand is that you have to 
work and you have to put a lot of extra work into making sure you stay nimble and you're able to move with urgency and the speed of culture. And so I like to say I take the best of the legacy brands that we bring, that we get to watch how other brands change and shape the market and either be ahead of it and driving it or react to it. But the role that legacy brands plays is so critical to the category. And I'm just privileged to be a part of that. Yeah, it's really neat to be part of that history. You know, in, in preparing for this, I I went through a realization of myself that that I've been really drawn to these 200 plus year, year old organizations. And it seems you keep going older. So, so I don't know if you're going to go federal government next or or our client Sazerac, they're, they're older than the government and they even have a bourbon archaeologist that works on staff there. So maybe I'll, I'll put a word over there. You have to you have to go there next. The cool thing about Colgate is you can get the best of both worlds when you come. So this is my little soapbox for those of you who are interested in working out of Awesome brand, a company that has a really cool brand with legacy staying power, but also gives you the opportunity to work on emerging brands. So my team also works on our Hello business, which is the, right now the fastest growing oral care business, but it also has personal care products. A really cool design forward brand within the Colgate family. There's Hills Pet. There's our skin, our Colgate skin built business, which has Falorga and PCA and uh, L2MD. I always get folks with the L2MD. As you're picking these legacy organizations, you should also pick the ones that have a, a breadth of portfolio that allow you to play in those spaces. When you do that, you really start to build a marketing talent that understands marketing as a craft and not just how to do that one rote thing right. Yeah. And I love organizations like that where things can move at different layers. I'm always talking about pace layering and, and making sure that you're fitting things into the right pace. And I love some of your more like, by the way, the unicorn flavor of hello is big with my daughter here, here at my house. But one thing I'm always interested in early in my career, I fell victim to this is I hated the phrase, this is how we've always done it. And in and, and a lot of contexts I do. But when you look at legacy brands, there's sometimes there's a good reason this is how we've always done it because it's allowed a brand to last for that long. So how do you figure out that balance between, hey, we need to throw away this is how we used to do it versus, oh, this is one that we should really embrace and, and keep going with it? Well, I mean, there you don't get to be around for 218 years if you don't know your stuff and if you don't mm -hmm. have strong foundations. So I think it's important to understand not only the legacy, the history, but the why behind what we do while also evolving with culture and the speed of culture. And that's when you have to recognize where you are on the journey. And oftentimes, a lot of folks talk to me about structure and what's the right marketing structure. And I always give a very unfulfilling answer is that there is none. It really depends on where you are and your organization is within your own journey. It also depends on what critical decisions you've determined are going to help take your business to the next level. For us, that really has to do with data and advanced analytics and insights. That's where we placed a big bet because we are human people obsessed. And to be able to really live into that obsession and deliver on that delightful product experience, but engagement that we want for our consumers, we have to do it right in those two areas first and foremost. And as a result, that is where we leaned in and start to really evaluate and pressure test, are we future-proof in these areas? And what adaptations, shift changes do we have to make in order to get to our North Star. Everything must be grounded in that North Star and where you're going. And I think that's what helps organizations make those decisions around what needs to, what we need to maintain, what we need to involve, and what we need to adapt. 
I think the other aspect of that that's really critical is understanding how you use your vendors, your agencies, and your partners and get the most out of those relationships, shifting from transaction relationships to matrix relationships to actually shared North Stars. And that really allows you to evolve together. But I do think it depends. As an industry as a whole, though, I think as we look at marketing, we really have to start examining some of the functional and siloed practices that we've had that were designed for an environment that we're no longer in. I talk about my best friends at work, and they tend to be our finance friends and our legal friends and human resources. And why that is, is because you know we have these very archaic P&L models and our ability to really build a strong relationship with the CFO and the finance function so that we can move and shift from a marketing perspective with the speed of change, shift with culture, and also react from a performance perspective to make sure we're putting the money in the right spot. That relationship is very critical. And it requires not only a knowledgeable finance partner, but a CFO that really understands how to drive demand, drive business, and leverage those profits to pull fuel back in the business. From a legal perspective, you know, with the rise of social and so many other elements that really have the consumer at the center and in control of how they view and engage with our products, being able to move quickly and have legal be right there with you to keep you out of jail, but also to allow you to move with speed is so critical for us. You know, I'm seeing that when things come to light, like the Met Gala this year, the carpet happened to look like toothpaste. And mm -hmm. we were able to get a post out the door and jump on it in two hours or less. That seems like a long time for some of you startup brands. Don't judge us. But when you have the table stakes that we do that are so high, legal is our best friend and they enable us to move with speed. And we continue to get faster and more proactive in those spaces. And then, you know, I find my HR partners, my people leaders are the most critical role for me because they have to have such a deep knowledge of my business to help me round out that team. I'd like to balance a team of depth and subject matter expertise, generalists, and the future of what marketing looks like. And that means we look for talent that really helps us round out. It's not always going to be that traditional marketer that's going to get that role, but there is a place for those marketers as well, too. So we're really investing in developing the best marketing organization that sets us up for success, not just this year, but makes it make sure we're future proof for the next 10, 20, you know, 200 years. <laughs> That's great. There's a lot that I want to poke into there, but the one I'd love to start with is the the lovingly way that you describe legal with affection and, and partnership. Now, there's a lot of, of of friends of mine and clients that are at legacy brands that it's a very different tone the way they describe legal. And that's probably part of the problem. You know, yeah. I, I'd love you to walk through. I mean, because even even something like that would be a no-brainer somewhere else. Like, hey, let's use third-party data. At some legacy organizations, it's really risky for them to step into that and it's new for them. Uh, I'd love to pull that. How do you get them to go along the journey with you and, and really become a partner on things that are new and risky? I think it's that first notion of like, how do you view partnerships? So like our mm. legal team, they're in it with us early. They understand our business and depth of business. I mean, they're sending me things just as much as, you know, my direct reports or my own team. And I think that mindset that a lot of people come with, you know, legal is a place they're going to come with a, a, a position of no all the time. You know, I find my legal partners are enablers. They want to enable the business goals and objectives that I have. And if I bring them in early and tell them what we're trying to do, they're the problem solvers or how I can do this and accomplish this well. So my experience with legal you know, has been different. My experience with HR is very different because to me, they're part of our roundtable 
of allowing us to push that thing forward. So when we do have something launch, they are just as much responsible as any other marketer or any other person on the team. And I think it's that approach with both legal, human resources, and finance that really changed the dynamics of your, your relationships. And then it allows them to proactively help you accomplish your goals from the upfront. I think what typically goes wrong is we pull in these folks way too late in the game and all we've left them with was the no. I like to give them the opportunity to say yes to as much as possible. And what I found is in order to do that, it's having them in early and also taking the time to truly help them understand your business. We bring legal into some of the agency meetings so they can have conversations. We make sure that they have an understanding and a, and a strong relationship with our creative team. And I think the other thing that's a big focus for me, especially you know when I come into a lot of the organizations, a lot of what I do is around change management, is what I find is in othering. We mm. tend to be able to cross-functionally other groups by saying, you know, finance said this, legal said this, HR said this, put a name on it. You know, my best friend in legal is Courtney. You know, Courtney's my girl. Like she's got my back and I know that. So when Courtney tells me no, it's out of protection. Um, but I know that she has my back. So put a name on it. That also helps because the humans in our organization are not getting up each day to make it harder for all of us to win. They're, we're all on the same team pushing the same thing forward. So I think for those of you on a change management journey, that othering piece is is a huge way to start to break down silos within the teams. Evolving Industries brought to you by Intepi. We bring order to chaos wherever people, process, and technology converge. Our culture drives our solutions, and we are solution-obsessed. We see every challenge as an opportunity, every partner as a collaborator, and every project as a chance to share our values and commitment to excellence. Give us a shout. We'd love to hear your challenges and turn them into opportunities. Find out more at Intevity.com. Now, back to the show. It really is. And, and it applies just in, in normal human life, too. I mean, when I, I jokingly, when I, my wife and I disagree, I just tell her, well, this is what corporate wanted. Corporate's demanding that we do it this way. So I guess that's what well, we, we do. We do that do. with parenting at my house. I'll be like, your son did this. Today, he's your son. Okay. <laughs> But even, you know, even if it's product design or, or whatever it is, having someone in at the beginning of the process versus just giving it to them at the end, even if the conclusion is the same, there's so much more bought into it, right? Like if you're planning a family vacation, if you were to say, hey, we're going to Aruba versus opening up the conversation, even if you end up at Aruba at the end of it, it's a very different buy-in experience for everybody, right? Yeah, it really does allow, and it allows for creativity. I think if you, mm. if you take something too far in the past, you lose the ability and the option for creativity. And then you back your subject matter experts and your partners in a corner. You want to give them as much freedom and flexibility as possible. I love that. You talk a lot about moving at the speed of culture. I'd love you to expand on that a little bit. Is What does that really mean? Well, I think there's two components that you have to think about. First, you have to think about the culture of your organization. You know, especially with Gen Z, who think and operate much differently than generations before them, like every generation has. How do you take advantage of that? But also, how do you design a workplace and, and, and a culture that enables the best out of the teams that you're, that you're in? And really being self-aware about that is important. But I think the other piece is, is for brands is really understanding the culture within your brand, with, with, that your brands exist. And how do you be a part of that culture in an authentic way? And I say oftentimes brands and we love our brands and we romance them and we're so focused on them that we want our brands to be the main character. You know, and what I try to tell the team is like that main character energy doesn't work within culture. 
we really have to set ourselves up to be the best friend of our consumer. And when you're the best friend, you know things about them. You know, like their likes, their dislikes, um, their dreams, and you enable them and you're supporting them and you have their back in that instance. So how do we have their back of our consumers? And then how do you show up in culture in an authentic way? Like, how do you make toothpaste relevant in a cultural conversation? It's not going to be the, the main stage, but you you see the nuances that are happening with culture and then you work within them. The Met Gala is a great example of that. We have Shed Shield, which is from Suave Tail, which is a fabric softener that allows you to uh, repel pet hair. So how do you think about that pet parent, their lifestyle, what's important to them? So we lo- we launched three-headed sweaters so that you could have your loved one, you know, you, as a pet parent, have them with you in that sweater. And you would think like that's super cheesy, but pet parents loved that. And they loved the ability to take pictures and be a part of that and really showcase their uh, loved one as part of their family. So when you really start to understand the culture within you play and how your brand lives within that culture, then you start to show up differently. It also allows you to be proactively prepared. And this is where those legal conversations early come into play to jump on cultural moments that happen and be a part of them in a very authentic way and in a way that delights your consumer. Yeah, really, that being proactively prepared is is such a huge advantage out there. What I'd like to dig into a little bit more, though, is in part of that, you can't do it alone, right? You can't be proactively prepared alone. He talked about vendors, agencies, and how do you really partner with them? You know, this is a selfish question, because I always want to make sure that we're being the best partner and agency that we can. You know, what is your philosophy on how, how, you know, do you like the big agencies? Do you like a lot of small? Do you have a general philosophy on how you engage? I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I think we have great agency partners. WPP at CP is our primary partner. We also work very closely with ARC. We work with Walrus and a lot of other agencies, Sasha as well too. And I really think you have to understand your brand, your role, and the job to be done. My agency friends hate when I say this, but I say it with love. Like I don't think that there's one agency that is necessarily superior to another. I have the benefit of having awesome teams and talents across the agency that are not only strong and passionate, but they care about delivering the business just as much as we do. And they have just as much skin in the game. I really think how you partner with agencies is a better reflection of what you're going to get out of that agency. So it's not necessarily the agency that you go with. You're going to pick an agency that has the things that you need, depending on where you're on the journey. So you know, if you're a smaller group, you may need certain things. You, you have to evaluate those offerings as well. But it's really about how do we work together to say, what are we trying to accomplish? And do we have the right people in place to accomplish that? Um, For me, uh, I like to make sure that we have longstanding relationships. That doesn't mean that we're married and we're in it forever. You know, there is a point in time where we're all always evaluating what is the right agency that's going to be a partner for us. But it's that open and transparent communication that you always know where you stand. You're my partner, so you're always going to have a chance. I think where we can share and develop talent together, I'm very passionate about that. I tell my agency partners, you know, I don't need every role to be a VP or a director. You give me that director who's on a cusp of a VP and I will invest in them in their development and then let them go off and celebrate them when they become a VP in two years, 18 months at that time. But how do we make sure the best talent wants to come and work on my business? I think my other role and how you partner with agencies is really giving them the air cover and protecting them. You know, you can really dull your creative team if you're not allowing them to deliver their best work. If you're becoming an art director and not letting them actually deliver against their expertise. So a lot of my role is shielding the agency to enable them to do their best work. 
So it really is, I think, when it comes to these relationships, looking at it as a, a long-term partnership and not just investing in the transaction, but really investing in developing the team and the people, that's when you get the sparkle and the shine from whatever agency partner that you work with. I also now, because we're in a very digital environment um, and there's a wider array of partners, look at that when it comes to a lot of our digital commerce partners. We work with Flywheel, we work with Profitero, um, we work with a lot of different digital partners that in the past may have been more transactional that I do feel like now are an extension of our team and we're heavily reliant on. And oftentimes they're bringing us business opportunities that we didn't see because they're so far into the data than we've ever been you know, before. So I think it's really exciting and having a strategy and a plan about it and developing your team so they know how to do that as well is really critical to being successful in this new, more complicated marketing environment. Well, that sounds like true partnership. And and I always find that being bi-directionally, being very honest about what your strengths are and what your strengths aren't. And when I tell my, if I'm, I couldn't be happier when a client tells me, hey, I know you're saying this is your strength, but I'm not seeing it. And yeah. I'm seeing these others that are much stronger at that. And I'd like to, I've heard you say often, you know, the organization should play to its strength and you shouldn't play the game of me too. I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear you expand a little bit on on what that me too is to you. I think it's really easy and we do this as humans all the time. It's always easy to see, you know, what what you don't have and what you're missing. Even for folks when they talk about their career development, it's really under important to understand your gaps. You know, we're all going to strive to be better and strive to work on our gaps. But where you really unpack unlock your superpower is understanding your strengths. Does your organization, does your do your teams, do you know the strength of your team? Do you know the strength of your organization? Do you know the strength of your brands and are you leaning into them? Because if you're just trying to be like someone else, you're going to fail at that because you're never going to deliver. But how do you really showcase the superpowers across your team, across your brands, and lean into them? The brands that do that well, the teams that do that well, are the teams that really deliver and the brands that really grow. I think for me personally, even when I'm designing a team, I already know where my gaps are. You know, I'm a lot. I'm I'm a very assertive person, so having a lot more having a team of just assertive people like me is probably not going to be the best dynamic. You know, I, I also know other gaps that I have in areas that I'm not as smart. My team is much smarter than me. They're much more creative and really being aware of that and filling a team that allows you to have the best path forward. That is the self-awareness and the vulnerability that it takes to not only be a good leader, but actually to deliver performance and results. And, and that really dovetails into, into seeking counsel and seeking advice. One of my uh, my prior guests, Julie Borston, she she wrote a book when, when female... Females lead, I believe is the name of it, and and she talks about how women are female leaders are so great in crisis moments because they're more hardwired and more likely to seek advice and counsel. And I'm curious, how do you incorporate counsel and advice into how you approach the problems? Um, so th- I I look at that as everything that I do for me personally, for my personal development. I have my board of directors that it ranges from you know a lot of people, most people who don't happen to look like me because you know I know what a black woman thinks in a lot of these surroundings. So really getting the benefit of having people who aren't like me to give me a perspective, especially to help me, you know, sometimes when you you want to deliver a message, you want it to land a certain way, understanding the perspective of other people, not that you would need to twist yourself in knots and be different, but how do you, how are you intentional about others' motivations and really thoughtful about how you communicate so that your message is understood and lands, but also results in action. So I do that for myself personally to get a broad range of perspective to really, you know, craft what I'm doing. But I also recognize that, especially as things are moving so fast, 
If you don't have a speed dial of folks that you can text, ask questions to, share challenges that you have, um, then you're at a loss. When it comes to how I work, the the scope of commit of responsibility that I have means that there is no way, shape, or form that I am going to be the expert in the things that I control. So being able to understand how to ask the right questions, how to share the right context and information to allow people to give you the right inputs to make decisions is so critical and is an, and, and it is a skill set that folks really need to learn if they want to continue to grow in this environment. I think another really critical skill set when it comes to that really being vulnerable and pulling people in is knowing connectors. So I consider one of my strengths to be a connector, so pulling the right people together. But do you know the right people who to ask the questions to? Can you mm. connect people across the organization so uh, that information is shared? But that level of vulnerability is important. And I found for myself personally, you know, as because, you know, I, I hope folks listening to this are thinking about how to grow their business, but also how to grow their individual brand and their personal business. You know, I've I'm, I'm lucky and fortunate enough to be in several groups with really strong leaders who also happen to be women. So coming out of the Forbes CMO Summit, uh, we have our own little WhatsApp group and we highly support each other. Um, we share ideas, we share best practices. But we also share the challenges that we're facing and are able to say, like, has anybody else faced this problem before? And then connect on a one-on-one basis to kind of talk through and share learnings. I'm also in another group that happens to be a group for women because like the past three years, not only just with Barbie, Beyonce and Taylor Swift, but women been holding, holding it down the, the last three years. But another group called Eve, which is leaders in the digital commerce environment. And with that group, it's not only been phenomenal because we, we, we have a, there's a bunch of senior leaders, but then we've also brought in mentees. So it's about sharing, but we've also had conversations around, you know, how to get on board seats, how you think about income negotiation. You know, that level of vulnerability allows us to lift each other up as opposed to just being out there on our own operating like we're the only ones having the problems that we're all having and facing together. So many great nuggets in there. And one part of that vulnerability that I've heard you talk about before is you are extremely open and candid about what motivates you. And that's always my first question when I'm building my network. If I have a new client, I'm like, what motivates you? What's success? You know, what's a win for you? And and, and I'm curious, how, was that difficult to step into being really comfortable talking about that? Was that just natural to you? And how have you found that it's it's been received? It's extremely uncomfortable. And every time I say it, I feel uncomfortable. But I say it so other people uh, feel more comfortable and it creates a space for them to be able to say it. And why is it uncomfortable? Because people's reaction to it um, tends to be um, negative. And I want to take the negativity out of some of these um, conversations and discussions, especially when it comes to women and especially when it comes to women of power and uh, women of color. And it's, it's, I had a leader, uh, Jim Sturbins, who was a sales leader of mine who actually helped me, you know, not only get to what they were, but pushed me on saying, uh, are those really your three, Diana? Because I know you quite well, and I don't think they are yours, but it's it's what you think people want to hear versus what your answer actually is. So my three, that, and I have more than three, but my top three are money, power, and influence. I speak about money very openly. I think we need to talk, be more comfortable talking with money, especially mm-hmm. as a Black woman uh, in growing up in the U.S. and really wanting to build back the generational wealth for my family that wasn't afforded to us just by the nature of us being Black in, in this country is really important for me to be able to have that open conversation and dialogue, not only with people who look like me, but you know other leaders who have been able to do it successfully. 
I am a for-profit entity. Uh, therefore, money is very important to me. And I make sure that my bosses know that it's my love language. My dad always uh, has coached me on the title is theirs, the money is yours. Um, so make sure, you know, I still want my title, um, mm-hmm. but make sure that you uh, negotiate well. So you're thinking about the long-term wealth and health of your family. I say power is very important because in roles that I'm in, the ability to be able to make the decision, but actually take the action that can drive in the results is important. Without that power, you can have all the best ideas in the world, but you're not able to move things forward. So as you look at roles, really understanding, does it allow you and afford you the power to be able to make the moves that you want to make? Or are you having to influence a number of people in order to get there? Those are things you want to consider. It's something that I definitely considered when I joined Colgate. It was one of the driving factors, along with the culture that drove me to say yes to the dress when it came to taking the role at Colgate. And I think the last piece for me in influence, you know, in most of the roles that you're in, especially in ones that I'm in, um, you're not directly responsible for a lot of the groups that you need to push things along. So, you know, I had that conversation about my best friends at work. I need finance, uh, legal. HR, supply chain. I need all of these functions to, you know, really row in the direction that I'm rowing, or I need to adjust to help them achieve their objectives as well, too. So being able to influence that group, and if you're in a role with the right title and the right level, and all of those things uh, are dependent on the culture and the um, climate that you're going into for an organization, it's important to know that and have those conversations up front. Navigating those waters after the fact, without having had those conversations and not going in with your eyes wide open can be a challenge. And I do, I try to have these conversations so more people feel comfortable having those conversations. And if you're in an environment where those conversations aren't welcome, then I would ask you to question if that's the environment that you want to be in. That's fantastic. And and thank you even personally, because I've started to try to figure out what my real three are, not the three that people want to hear what I think that I I should be saying. Then looking forward a little bit, you know, we talked about different perspectives, vulnerability. There are some trends going on right now. I'm curious your perspective. AI is definitely more than a fad that's going on right now. What are you seeing from your, your seat? I love that AI is hot right now. I mean, uh, for all of the marketing geeks out there, we've been leveraging AI for, for quite, quite a bit of time. It's exciting to see the new opportunities that it's opening up for us. I think for me personally, what's exciting for me is the amount of work that is, you know, uh, maybe more complex or highly tactical that we can shift over to AI. Like I've been using AI to write JDs job descriptions for a little bit of time. What other work can we shift so that we can we can leverage and tap into more of the strategic mindset um, about our most with our most valuable resources, uh, our employee population. So how do we shift more work there? Uh, but for me, the biggest conversation about AI that I'm pushing is really the democratization and access my AI. It is so critical. We're at this pivotal point where AI is going to shape not only how we live, how we work, how we operate as humans going forward. And similar to uh, when the internet really came to be such a center of everything we are, there are going to be a few people that are the architects of the laws, the regulations, and how we navigate within the space. And it's so critical, especially for those groups that are underrepresented, I like to say just underestimated, to have access um, to the tech, to also be able to have a say and a seat at the table on how we're thinking about regulations, laws, and what this tech means. There can be bias in the tech and we have to work around that. And the narrative right now, you know, I posted recently on LinkedIn, tends to be very male dominant when there are a, there are a ton of women 
in tech that are leading these AI conversation. There are tons of people of color that are also pushing and addressing a lot of the biases that remain. And I think we just have to be really mindful, especially when it comes to creatives, how we're not only thinking about this space, but ensuring that we protect groups and make sure everyone has access, but we don't dull um, our existence by not being thoughtful about this. Think about all of the folks that may be not be as privileged, but we may miss out on the creativity that they bring forward just by the nature of some of the tech that's coming forward. So it really is on us. You know, I work for a big company and organization, you know, and I see it as my responsibility to make sure my employee population has been in AI and is leveraging it for things and comfortable with it, understanding it. So they're bringing their unique perspective to the AI conversation. So that's my soapbox. It's on all of us. So hopefully those listening, you take that your privilege as well too from the seat that you sit in because we all have it and really think about how you can ensure that you're democratizing it and create access for others. Love that. And it and it should make it all better. It should enrich the entire voice. You know, large language models are all, they get better the more that you have in there. And and that just doesn't mean more content. It means more more uh, diverse thoughts, more, you know, removing as many biases as possible. So well, I love and that. If you- Whenever we do things like that, it makes it better for all. Initially, those, you know, the curbs in the streets where, you know, we were designed for, you know, the folks in wheelchairs to make sure they could get up the curb. But if you have a baby stroller, if it's icy out, those curbs and having that ability to have that little slope to get up in the sidewalk, that helps all of us. So when we do these things, it, it does seem like we're doing it for one specific group, but actually all boats rise we start to really think about the nuances of these spaces. So it's just critical for us to be not only good corporate citizens, but good human citizens. You know, I'm trying to raise a little one of those too. <laughs> Same here. And that's a great example. And, and for the listeners, if you haven't heard of a podcast called 99% Invisible, check out an episode that they do on curb cutouts because it's fantastic. And maybe just think about AI the whole time that you're listening to yeah. that podcast episode. It'll be fantastic. So Diana, I, thank you very much. I'd like to finish with, with a question, which is, Throughout your whole life, career, personal work, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I rece- received was stay true to your, your value constructs and always hold true to them and never sacrifice them for anyone. But I think the most practical advice that has benefited me that I, I, I hope you know, younger professionals understand is you know, I was given the advice to always live within or below your means. Because whenever you're in a, in a business environment, you want to be able to make the best decision and to show up and have the best point of view. And if financially you are silenced because your fear of, I could lose my job, I could lose my, what is this rule, stops you from speaking, then that limits your ability to, to be your best self and really deliver on what you're hired for, which is to have a point of view. So having that financial security allows you to take risks that you couldn't normally take because you are allowed to lead with your values uh, versus being concerned about, you know, whether or not uh, you, you can say something in a meeting or not. It's very powerful. And, and it fits into the living by your values thing, because if you are within, if you do have that, that safety, you're going to be less tempted to stray from those values. Great. Diana, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and lending me your platform. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Evolving Industry. For more, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And pretty please, drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're watching or listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and smash the bell button for notifications. 
If you know someone who's pushing the limits to evolve their business, reach out to the show at evolvingindustry@integrity.com. Reach out to me, George Jagosinski on LinkedIn. I love speaking with people getting the hard work done. The business environment's always changing and you're either keeping up or going extinct. We'll catch you next time. And until then, keep evolving.